Well, as you gather back together, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians once again. The book of 1 Corinthians, as we continue on our sermon series in chapters 12, 13, and 14 on what we're entitling the grace gifts that God gives to His church for our joy in Him. And so we're at 1 Corinthians in chapter 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? There's many definitions in our world today of love. You ask that question and you'll get a lot of different answers. Definitions of love in our world are often numerous, but also humorous. In an article entitled, What is Love? Famous Definitions from 400 Years of Literary History, the author shares several definitions, and one of them from Stendhal in his 1822 treatise on love says, Love is like a fever which comes and goes quite independently of the will. There are no age limits for love. Ambrose Bierce, with the characteristic wryness of his work entitled The Devil's Dictionary, he defines love as a temporary insanity curable only by marriage. Lemony Snicket, who is always has good definitions, he states, love can change a person the way a parent can change a baby, awkwardly and often with great, a great deal of mess. The Global News of Canada uh, asked some elementary students what they thought of love, and again, children always have the best answers. One said, I guess my best way of explaining what I think love is would be like the solar system. There are a bunch of planets that can represent people. And then, of course, gravity holds them together. Gravity is sort of like love. No matter how far apart people are, love can hold them together. It's a pretty good definition. Lots of definitions in our world. Perhaps one of the truest and humblest comes from Agatha Christie when she writes, It is a curious thought, but it is only when you see people looking ridiculous that you realize just how much you love them. The truth is, love can often seem like a vague idea, can it? As we saw, people can define love and give it any sort of meaning they want. Is it an emotion? Is love objective or is it subjective? Does it require action or can you just say the words, I love you? In fact, nowadays we love almost everything. Pizza, sushi, kale. I don't know if you love kale. I don't know what's wrong with you there. We love our spouse, our children, the latest Netflix original series. You name it, you'll find someone who loves it. But I sure hope love doesn't mean the same thing for all of those things. If you go to our modern experts on life and love, the psychology today, you'll find this answer. They write, love is a force of nature. However much we may want to, We cannot command, demand, or take away love any more than we can command the moon and the stars and the wind and the rain to come and go according to our whims. We may have some limited ability to change the weather, but we do so at the risk of upsetting an ecological balance we don't fully understand. Similarly, we can stage a seduction or mount a courtship, but the result is more likely to be infatuation or two illusions dancing together than love. Love is bigger than you are. You can invite love. But you cannot dictate how, when, and where love expresses itself. You can choose to surrender to love or not. But in the end, 
Love strikes like lightning. It's unpredictable and irrefutable. You see, in our culture, where love is primarily something that you fall in or out of, the biblical meaning and significance of love certainly warrants our careful attention. The need for genuine Christ-like love remains as great today as ever. So where would most of us go when seeking to find a biblical definition of love? Most of us would go to this chapter in front of us this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, it's one of the most preached and quoted chapters in all of the New Testament. In everything from weddings to coffee mugs, you see 1 Corinthians 13. But what we find here is not exactly what we might expect to find when looking for a, a simple, straightforward definition of love. And the reason for that is this chapter has a context. And it's not a wedding, nor is it even a Christian bookstore. You see, while this chapter clearly possesses a, a standalone quality, its principles certainly applying to both marriage and to everyday living as a Christian, what we've seen over the past several weeks is that Paul is writing here to a pretty messed up group of people here in the city of Corinth, a church that's not just arguing over which spiritual gifts are most important, but they're also suing one another, sleeping with one another, and have created a quote-unquote Corinthian idol with their teachers, Paul and Apollos. Paul will even tell them that when they meet, it's not for their better, but for the worse. Because some of them are simply snacking on the Lord's Supper and in doing so are taking it in an unworthy manner. The bottom line is this church in which this chapter comes to has some serious problems. And as we saw last week, the underlying issue was that they were diminishing God's grace. They had assumed the matter of first importance, what Paul will write in chapter 15, they had assumed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, in order for us to understand and fully appreciate what we have in this chapter, Paul's words must be read in light of the full argument of his letter. You see, what Paul is doing here is not simply defining love. He's applying love. And so John Piper concludes, Paul is not trying to define love here in the abstract. Rather, he is laying love as a grid over this messed up Corinthian church where he sees all these behaviors and says, your attitudes and your behaviors are not how love acts or feels. And so Paul would write here, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and I have prophetic powers, and if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, 
and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word, the basis for what we believe and the norm for how we live out our faith. And so let's thank him for it before we dive in this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word, that when we hear all of these definitions and understandings of love, we know we can come to the true source. We can come to your word, and here you will give us the answers. You will show us what love is. And so this morning, God, I pray that as we remember that this passage is written to a certain group of people, many years removed from us this morning, that we would still remember that it's still the same truth for us now. That we can be caught in the same trap of assuming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can diminish your grace by arguing over other things like spiritual gifts, and we can get on off course. God, I just pray that you would this morning redirect us to a better way the way of love that you show us here in your word. Teach us through it. May we be hungry to take it in and then live it out. In your name, amen. While it might first appear that Paul is losing his train of thought as he's gone in from chapter 12 to talking about the gifts and now all of a sudden he's talking about love, what becomes clear by the end is that if you don't understand chapter 13, you won't be able to carry out what we saw in chapter 12 last week. You won't be able to delight in the distributed grace of God in the body. And then if you don't understand chapter 13, you'll also miss the point of chapter 14 entirely. As one begins to dig deeper, you begin to see that there's some well-thought-out patterns and the persistent idea throughout these chapters of living in humility toward one another through the use of the grace gifts in love. And so while we are, of course, supposed to think deeply about what Paul is saying here in chapter 13, Paul is actually more interested in getting us to react, to act upon his words. You see, Paul here reveals to the church in Corinth and us today that the distinguishing mark of true Christian community is love. The distinguishing mark of true Christianity is love. It's not the correct practice or use of the spiritual gifts. No, there is, as Paul wrote in chapter 12, verse 31, a more excellent way, a better way, and this is the way, the way of love. You see, it's, it's not enough for a church to say we are committed to the centrality of the gospel, the authority of the Bible, to even the effective Christ-exalting operation of the spiritual gifts, and to do so without love. Each of those commitments must be seasoned in love. And so I believe God would impress upon each of us this morning through this chapter this truth, that true love does, should not lie dormant, 
as only an affection within our hearts. No, true love is to be clearly visible in our actions toward one another. And so Paul shows us this truth as he opens the chapter, revealing to us the importance of love. In verse 31, as I just read, he says, And I will show you still more, a still more excellent way. Again, before helping the Corinthians rightly pursue and understand the higher gifts, the spiritual gifts, Paul recognizes that he must first point out that there is a, a danger in the supreme fruit of the Spirit, love getting pushed to the side during a scramble for the popularity through the gifts. And so Paul's point here, writes D.A. Carson, is that love, that the love he's about to discuss cannot be classed with the grace gifts, the charismata. It's not one grace gift of many. No, love is an entire way of life. It's an overarching, all-embracing style of life that utterly transcends in importance the claims of this or that grace gift. That does not mean, of course, that Paul is saying the grace gifts are not important. It means rather that if too much attention is given to the grace gifts, believers may have a tendency to overlook the most important of the entire way of life, the way of love. Love, then, as we shall see, is the way of life that gives a meaning. It gives a depth to any spiritual gift that God might grant. And so this is why in the first three verses here, Paul is holding up the contrast between love and the, and the gifts. If I speak with tongues but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and knowledge, I have all faith, but have not love, I'm nothing. He's employing a singular I here in these verses, but he's doing so to present a, a hypothetical situation where he places himself in the position of really what the, Corinthian, the Corinthians themselves had been saying. You see, they had been exalting themselves and their practice of the gifts to unusual degrees. So, he in essence is saying here, if I, and they should get that he's talking about them here, if I possess and exercise the gifts of tongues, the gift of prophecy, knowledge, faith, in, a, in even the most extraordinary ways. I mean, if I had the tongues of men and of angels, if I had prophetic powers to understand all sorts of mysteries, if I had all knowledge, all faith, so as even to remove a mountain, but if I, again, they should get the hint, he's talking about them, if I had these gifts and exercised them without love, I am nothing. His exaggeration here is making his point relatively simple. No matter what the gift, no matter how exalted the gift may be in the eyes of men, without love, now notice this, not just it is nothing. What does Paul say? I am nothing. He's not just saying the gift is nothing. He's saying I the point being made is meant to shock and startle the church. He's not confronting the grace gifts themselves or even the use of them at this point. He's confronting once again the arrogant hearts within the church in Corinth. They were the problem, not the gifts. 
And so their use of tongues, their use of prophecy, knowledge, and faith, in other words, any of the gifts were empty. They were meaningless noise because they were being practiced without love. Now the illustration he uses here of a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal hits home to many of us who have allowed our children to play with the pots and pans in the kitchen at some point. Or to those of us who have pulled that rather foolish move of letting our kids talk us into buying them one of those small tambourines. Right, community group? I mean, could there be anything more annoying than that small tambourine in the hands of a child? It's cute for like two seconds. This is actually Paul's point. The use of the gift of tongues, which we'll study in a couple weeks, if practiced without love and for the common good of the body, is annoying. And even what might seem to be, he says, a rather selfless act, a giving away all that I have, or the supreme self-sacrifice of giving over my body to be burned, if it's without love, both are vain. So while Paul uses a, uses a sense of hyperbole here to startle them, it's certainly something they need to hear. For as we saw last week, pride within this church had been creeping up, not just in the surface, but it was deeply seated and it infested everything this church did. You see, the opposite of love is not hate, it's pride. This was their problem. Their lovelessness gave birth to their superiority complex. And so Paul is identifying this enemy within, and then he elevates love as the better way. Love is to be what fuels and motivates the use of the gifts. This is how the common good is accomplished, and Christ is magnified through them. Love, he is saying, is indispensable. The gifts, on the other hand, are dispensable. And so with that being established, Paul then moves in verses 4 through 8 to lay out the imperatives of love, the commands, the action of love. And so he says, love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast. Notice that he's not giving us the Webster's Dictionary definition here. But instead, he describes behavior that manifests love. As D.A. Carson notes, not one one of these elements in this list is sentimental. Everything is behavioral. The reality is, this should be very instructive to our understanding of love. We might want a word study on love, and it could be useful. It could help us get a better grasp of what love is, but a word study is not sufficient. For what Paul wants the church in Corinth And what I believe God would want us as the church here today to understand is that love isn't just a static word on a page. No, it's a deeper reality. A reality that's to be displayed in our actions toward one another. And so he personifies love here in these verses to show us the action that lies within love. And so notice that there's 16 different verbs or imperatives he uses here. The first two, patient and kind, offer love as a positive, offers love's positive aspects. This is what love is. It's patient. That is, it's long-suffering. 
This word usually suggests not merely a, a willingness to wait a long time, like waiting in a doctor's office, but an endurance of injuries without retaliation. It's more like waiting in a DMV. See, here patience is a willingness to take upon oneself the pain for another's ultimate good. It's long-suffering. So knowing all the problems that are going on in this church, the back-and-forth battles and bickering that's happening, he's saying love is patient with all the suffering one might endure. But it's also kind. That is, in the face of that suffering and opposition, it's quick not to pay back injury for injury, but friendly courtesy in the face of injury. And these first two complement each other. But they're not everyday experience within this church here in Corinth. For as Paul points out in the first 11 chapters, these believers were quick to retaliate rather than long-suffering. The next eight in the list are negative imperatives. Paul uses to demonstrate the lack of love prevalent within this church. In other words, it could be said of these believers, they were in fact envious. They were boasting, arrogant, rude, insisting on their own ways, irritable, resentful. They were known for rejoicing at wrongdoing. Their lack of love is very evident, as Paul has again pointed out throughout the book so far. If we turn to chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul addresses the envy, jealousy, and strife that is common among them as they, in their relation to their leaders. You see, love... On the other hand, he's saying, does not pit one leader against another. It does not go about boasting and becoming jealous over who, who's going to be the one that teaches. Is it Apollos or Paul? In chapter 4, verse 6, he identifies that there's a widespread boasting and arrogance that was the norm in this church at Corinth. Chapter 7, verse 36, he, he confronts rude behavior, which there... Is more specifically, this word rude has to deal with indecent sexual behavior that's going on in the church. In chapter 10, verse 24, he exhorts that no one, he exhorts no one to seek his own good. And yet, that's what they're doing over and over again. They're looking out, they're insisting on their own way. I mean, the list could go on and on as we go throughout this book to see the easily angered, dissatisfied actions, the keeping record of wrongs that these believers in the church in Corinth were known for. But he doesn't stop and take a breath here. He continues in this rapid-fire exhortation here, and he gives six more positive examples of love. So he moves quickly from positive, patient and kind, then the negative back to the positive. And again, he's making a point here. Love is not static. It's in action. As he gives this rapid-fire list here, they are to feel a sense, a weight of their actions. And so he says it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. And by the time they would have read these words, they would have sensed the conviction that their lives were not shaping up to what Love truly is. One commentator translates these last aspects of love as love never tires of support. It 
never loses faith, never exhausts hope, and never gives up. What's clear at the end of this list is that love is in no way selfish. It's in no way self-focused. It's in always selfless, others-focused. It's not self-serving, but grace-giving. Where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, writes Wayne Grudem, many small offenses, even some large ones, are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound. Seems to be the case in this church. In Romans chapter 12, and as we looked at last week, church in Rome had their own difficulties. Paul asserts in chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. In other words, let the unconditional love you have for one another be sincere. Let it be unhypocritical. The word for genuine there in Romans in the original was a word often applied to the actor who played a certain part on the stage. See, Paul's point to the church in Rome was that love is not merely play acting. It is to be genuine. It is to be sincere. The church should never turn itself into a stage for performance to just put on love on the outside so that everyone looks good. Love is not a theater. Love belongs in the real world. And see, hypocrisy and love cannot coexist. They're directly opposed to one another. Hypocrisy is the one that focuses on self, while love focuses upon others. But, as most of us have grown up in the church, maybe some of you have not, hypocritical, phony love is what is often experienced in the church, isn't it? Just like we see here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Oh, people are polite, they're helpful, apparently warm on the outside, yet there seems to be this cold, self-serving rudeness on the inside. Oh, don't get me wrong, there's certainly a veneer of niceness that's developed within the church, but that often covers up some backbiting, prejudice underneath the attractive surface. This is what seems to be happening here in 1 Corinthians. Sadly, it happens in many churches today. It's this sad reality that led one modern songwriter to pen these piercing words. Is there anyone that fails? Is there anyone that falls? Am I the only one in church today feeling so small? Because when I take a look around, everyone seems, everybody seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away, like everything's okay. If I make them believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I play that part again. So everyone will see me the way that I see them. Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness and smiles to hide our pain? But if the invitations open... To every heart that has been broken, maybe then we close the curtain on our stained glass masquerade. Let me pause at this point and ask this. How about our love? How about your love? Is your love lying dormant 
Or is it visible in your actions toward those here in our community of faith? Is it genuine? Or is it simply a veneer of niceness? Can you go back, as one commentator suggests, go back through this chapter and substitute your name for the word love? Dan is patient and kind. Dan does not envy or boast and so on. Ouch. (laughs) I think about it that way. I know many times when we read this passage and we talk about love, especially in the context of the church, it can lead to many feeling guilt and condemnation for not living up to this. And while I pray this morning that through God's word, each one of us might experience the grace of conviction for a lack of genuine love, it's not my prayer that anyone would who is a child of God would experience condemnation. For as Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation, not to those who have worked real hard, but to those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's this truth that leads me to expand the context of 1 Corinthians 13 to not only the book of 1 Corinthians, but also to the entire story of redemption that we find in the pages in front of us. For you see, the importance and the imperatives of love we observe here in these words find a beautiful stimulus in the incarnation of love. You see, the reality is there's only one name that can truthfully replace the word love in this chapter. That is the name above all names, Jesus. He alone defines love. When we see what love looks like, when we consider who He is and what He has done. In fact, that's exactly what John explains when he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. So do you want to know what love is? Look to Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you want to know what love does? Look to the cross. For this, this is what Christ has done in love for us. He was willing to suffer so that we who might who believed might be honored and gain life. Even when we were unlovely, when we were entrenched in sin, Christ died for us. So the incarnation of love is good news. Good news for all of us that We are not loved because we are intrinsically lovable or lovely, but it's because we 
We, or because we've made ourselves worthy of any honor. No, that's not why we're loved. We are loved because Jesus died for us even when we were unattractive. And so, friend, you might be here this morning knowing the full, that full well that you are in desperate need of that kind of love. A love that only God through Jesus Christ can give to unlovely people like you and like me. And if that's you this morning, hear this good news in one of the most familiar verses in all of Scripture. You've probably heard it before, but hear it again like it's the first time. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So friend, if you need that love, you feel the weight of your sin, the need for forgiveness, turn to Christ today. Repent of your sin and your unworthiness and experience true love in Christ. While it may be difficult to provide a perfect definition of Christian love, as D.A. Carson again notes, it's not difficult to find its supreme example. Christ's love for us is not grounded in our loveliness, but in His own character. His love is not merely sentimental, yet it is charged with incalculable affection and warmth. It is resolute in its self-sacrifice, but never merely mechanical self-discipline. If we wish to come to terms with the New Testament ethic of Christian love as the most excellent way that all believers must follow, we need only look to Jesus Christ. This past week, while we were doing something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but our kids were watching the old timeless movie, Mary Poppins. Everybody loves Mary Poppins, don't you? The practically perfect person, Mary Poppins. Somewhere towards the end of the movie, Mary is talking with her umbrella, which is a parrot. If you haven't seen it, you have to watch it. Her end of her umbrella is a parrot, and her parrot starts to question Mary for her care for the kids. The kids have gone off to loving their father and no longer uh, seem to care that Mary Poppins is about to leave. And he questions, do you really care about those children? Of course, she shuts its beak and says, don't talk anymore. But she also says this line that I thought was really interesting. Practically perfect people never permit sentiment to muddle their thinking. Practically perfect people never permit sentiment to muddle their thinking. It's a line in the movie that many say they live their life by. And yet what we found here in chapter 13 this morning is the complete opposite isn't it? Love is not something to hold within or to push aside. It's not just an affection. No, love is an action. It is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It never ends. This is the distinguishing mark of a true Christian community. Love. 
Jonathan Edwards, in his well-known work, Charity and Its Fruits, writes these profound words. If love is so great a thing in Christianity, so essential and distinguishing, yea, the very sum of all Christian virtue, then then surely those that profess themselves Christians should live in love and abound in the works of love. For no works are so becoming as those of love. If you call yourself a Christian, where are your works of love? Have you abandoned them? Do you abound in them? Do you love your fellow men? What have you done for them? Do not make excuse that you have no no opportunities to do anything for the glory of God, for the interest of the Redeemer's kingdom, and for the spiritual benefit of your neighbors. If your heart is full of love, he writes, it will find vent. You will find or make ways enough to express your love in deeds or in actions. When a fountain abounds in water, it will send forth streams. Love is the main principle in the heart of a real Christian. So the work of love is the main business of the Christian life. You see, church, what Paul shows the church in Corinth is that love doesn't just lie dormant as an affection in the heart. No, love is clearly visible in the actions toward one another. May that be our love for each other. God, I pray to that end. I pray that it might be said of our church and of each individual here that we are loving and we love one another because you first loved us. So this morning, we don't tighten up the bootstraps to go to work hard on loving. We rest in your love, knowing that your love transforms, it shapes, it changes our hearts, and it springs forth like a fountain out of us into loving others. That it truly is the fruit of the Spirit working in us. That as we've even seen in chapter 12, that the only reason we can say Jesus is Lord is because the Spirit indwells us. And the only reason we can love is because the Spirit indwells us. And so God, I pray that we would saturate ourselves in your love and your grace so that we might pour it out on others.